So, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Helen Tong here, a Barrister Law Consultant, and I'm doing um, part two of episode eight on data protection of the DIFC. Now, most of you may have watched this as part of the uh, YouTube uh, filming yesterday, and so I'm doing the part two today with a view of basically summarizing the article that I had written at LexisNexis um, as part of the Ind Middle East, the impact of DIFC rules, and also to provide some heads up, some pointers, and some tips for those that are either going to be applying the DIFC rules or are going to be obviously observing the laws as it were um, for your day-to-day -day practice. So isn't it a timely uh, fashion to talk about um, the data protection rules? So just to summarize what we spoke about yesterday was I gave an overview of what the laws entailed. I gave a summary of how important the people that will be or the peoples that will be nominated um, as the controllers um, and also people that will be processing the data protection rules. I also spoke about the commissioner or be it the um, nominated individual um, who will be in essence regulating um, the question of how, the question of in what shape and form is yet to be, I think, fleshed out. But that also gives a lot of scope and a lot of room for those of us who are lawyers, who are practitioners in um, tackling what this may mean. So to, for those that may or may not already know, um, the data protection rules are already quite robust across the ponds in uh, America and also in the UK and the EU. For many countries that are playing catch-up, in which case this is the case for the um, the uh, UAE, it is going to be quite interesting because, you know, when we look about uh, developments, and I'm speaking about the law, I'm talking about developments, and I use the example of, let's say, the, um, the railway and the rail tracks. Every country that has, you know, adopted the railway probably um, a few years later, albeit a generation... <laughs> I call it a generation, but what I'm saying is the model is we will discover that there are consequential improvements to it than to the original. So I use a great example of, let's say, the tube in London, and then you go all the way to Japan, where you then get the Shinkansen, and you get the absolute new maglev and the, um, you know, the exponential growth of it. So I guess, in a way, you could say that the data protection laws of the UAE are a refinement of those that were drafted prior to that. So in the USA, in the UK, in the EU, and then so hopefully in theory that they are better versions of, you know, what was originally. It's difficult to say at this point because as a lot of you know, um, the way the laws are applied are obviously different. In the UAE, we have the civil law system, and we also have concurrently the DIFC um, as an institution, as an offshore jurisdiction. So that would be, you know, no different to any other offshore jurisdiction for the likes of potentially ADGM, which I'm in essence saying that I cannot imagine there'll be, say, contradictory laws, but rather they would be, in essence, parallel or could sit quite comfortably side by side. So what I want to do is I want to follow through um, into part two. So following from emphasizing the importance of controllers and processors is now talking about data export and sharing. So one of the questions that I posed earlier is, well, what's the difference between data that's utilized in, say, the DIFC internally and then 
utilize externally. And I gave the point that whilst it's easy to say on paper that it's only contained in relation to data within the DIFC, I think the moment that such data is being exported or utilized, I think whilst um, I think it would be easy for me to say on paper, well, it doesn't necessarily extend externally. For me, it really depends on the context, because can you imagine data being exchanged internally and externally? I think it would be on the safer side as any business to actually ensure that your data is actually contained that way. I'm going to be talking about the commission as well. So the commissioner is quite an author role or authority role should I put it this way that it is um, in essence um, applied under article 46 of the DIFC rules of number 5-2020 and the delegation powers are dealt with under article 47 DIFC law um, and there is a code of conduct which is produced under article 48 which in essence lists down the powers um, of the commissioner to monitor the compliance in relation to the code of conduct and the possibility of a certification scheme which I think would be fascinating as to see how that would come about and then there are also provisions related to funding under article 54 and under articles 56 audit of the commissioner under article 57 and then in relation to annual reports um, under article 58 then I move quite swiftly on into remedies, liabilities and sanctions, which is an area of great interest to me, not least because of my background in disputes and litigation. But for example, parties are able to lodge complaints and mediations under Article 60 of the DIFC law rule. If there is felt that there is any contravention, then under Article 60, any imposition of fines will be placed under Article 64. And in essence, it's to have some checks and balances um, to ensure that the commissioner is also doing their job properly as much as anything else. Now, the commissioner may direct an appeal to the court against a finding within 30 days or data subject who feels they've suffered material loss or non-material damage, as it were, that is contravention of the law. And they may be compensated accordingly under Article 64. Now, there are obviously general some general exemptions as well. For example, if there are financial losses due to dishonesty, malpractice and serious improper conduct and failure on behalf of the DIFC, then that will obviously be dealt with differently. So what I want to now talk about is how this um, sort of pan out um, in your day-to-day -day practice as a practitioner and how do you um, want to you know deal with data protection laws um, you know in your day-to-day -day work. Now what I really want to say is it's I would say, okay, on the one hand, we would say, well, it's very similar to data protection rules, um, say, in the UK, in Europe, and in US, so we can clearly just look at what's being done and follow, which would be, you could say, an opt-out and also a lazy way of doing it, because as I said before, it has to be seen in context of the UAE. And I guess one of the observations I've seen in the UAE is... Whilst obviously the laws can be quite stringent, and particularly when it comes to fines, and the annex does have very, um, very much laid out the kind of fines out there, and I would say that it's quite considerable. So it would be in every company's interest to actually comply. Now the question of well, how do you comply? That is a big question mark. And early in my part 
uh, one recording, I mentioned that it has to be, I would say, in proportionate to the size, to the scope, and to the kind of dealings that one organization has in relation to the data. So, for example, if you're a one-man show, then clearly the kind of data you're dealing with probably would be considerably less than if you're a multi-million dollar company um, having to deal with um, lots of data in terms of individual um, information and also in terms of different aspects. So, for example, in DIFC, just literally listing out the potential kind of businesses if you're a law firm. Obviously, you will have client names, you have client details. If you're a financial services or you're in the insurance or in the IT sector, then there will be considerably a lot more data that you have to deal with. Now, the beauty, albeit that at this early stage of the DIFC rules, there is no, I would say, absolute guidance, strict guidance as to how they would wish, i.e. the commissioner would wish to see how your checks and balances are laid out. It is pretty much an open book as to how you wish to label it, if and as and when you will be called upon to be held accountable, as it were, as to how you... Um, list your data or monitor your data protection internally. So I have a view on this. I would say a bit like the economic sanctions, they have guidance, but they don't tell you exactly what. So I would say if you're a smart, savvy um, lawyer and you are in-house counsel, albeit that you're a business um, decision maker, i.e. the CEO, the manager, you would probably want to call your team together probably in the new year, sooner than later, and you will probably want to sort of list out what are our internal procedures. Now, it may surprise you. There are procedures for all kinds of things for compliance for you know let's say if you were to order a takeaway or for instance if someone was to um, make an actual order in terms of the delivery of goods but for data protection I think is still at the very very early stages and so there is opportunity in the sense that you can actually write it's a very greenfield thinking you could do your own manual you could say, well, this is what I wish and what I desire. When someone signs up, I want to see X, Y, and Z happen. And then you do your bucket list and you go through that process. Then what I would do is then I would train and I would get HR on board. I would get IT on board, particularly those I'm going to nominate as the controller or the processor, the people or the peoples or the team that's going to be in charge. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to do internal training and I'm going to train my organization so that people know when X comes across your, you know, your file, you know exactly what to do. And I'm thinking quite specifically of complaints. Now, I guess it's not a very fashionable thing to say, particularly when it's the new year, but it's precisely what organizations need to think about. They need to think about the worst case scenario, because as I said before in my part one recording, is I worked in an organization previously where there was an individual that did want their name and their company name to be eliminated in the history of this um, company's um, records so you don't want to be in a situation where you actually have no plan and not least is because you have no procedure those are the two scenarios where you don't want to be in and then third thing is obviously the fines and the commissions and how do you ensure that your processes are so transparent that they cannot be appealed because understand that in the DIFC rules they talk about um 
appeals in essence it's called a um, judicial review which again for me is a fascinating term because the concept of judicial review is an appeal from the administrative level so for example the commissioner comes along does a check and balance be it that you get fined or you not get fined either way there is a complaint from the actual user Judicial review is in essence when you got when they got it wrong, and somehow you need to be able to explain why. So the only way I can think of that it could work for you as a legal advisor, as a legal counsel, or as a business is when you can properly say from day one, these are your processes X, Y, and Z. This is how you've explained it to your customers, and moreover, this is how you've explained it to the commissioner as to how you're going to deliver. That is the only way that you can actually hold yourself accountable if people know the process. Now, it's all very well if you as an organization know what your processes are, but if your clients do not know, if the commissioner comes along and has no idea what your internal processes are, in essence, it sounds like you're making it up as you go along. That would be a disaster because once the fine hits your organization, then you're basically on the back foot as to how you can actually justify how you deal with these processes. And I think the other thing what it does is it also manages expectations. For the example of the one-man band, the middle SME, and then the multi-million dollar organization, is clearly how long a matter is resolved um, is also quite important. So for example, if let's say you are putting it out there that it's gonna take you one week, two weeks, one month, a few months to resolve a matter, at least it gives and provides guidance to those that have signed on board and it will actually manage the expectation. And then accordingly, the um, controller or the person in charge of the data protection rules will then need to be able to follow up consistently with all the inquiries that therein come in. And when I say consistently, I'm talking about the reasonable expectation of an ordinary business person, let's say the three to five business day, or be it a week or so turnaround. I think what could be quite um, possible is that some of these inquiries get left sort of in the, um, the sort of to get to be done ashtray or trays and are neglected and thereby causing a lot of anxiety on the part of let's say the individual that let's say wants their data removed and hence actually maximizes the opportunity for further complaints and fines which no organization would want so in essence we are we rather than operating from a fear base factor i would rather organizations operate from a proactive position and I think what I'm going to do in my other trainings is to actually give examples and maybe even deliver workshops on this because um, one of the concerns I do have, and it's an outstanding one, is because in the DIFC rules, it says very clearly that there may be opportunity for some form of accreditation, which to a certain extent I think is great because what it does is it sets up standards. It sets up the minimum expectation of any organization, be it a one-man band, an SME, or a multi a million dollar operation 
currently, as we speak in December, in December 2020, we do not have that. So the, the problem that we may face is when we leave it to the commissioner, and I'm working on the basis that it's all upon goodwill, it's all upon the basis of good faith, that they're purely doing it as an administrative you know, um, process, is that because we don't know what the standards are, we don't know what we're meeting, in a sense it's shooting, you know, um, hitting the bullseye in the dark. So it's quite easy, um, let's say, for example, the let's just put this the obnoxious bystander or the complainer to go really overboard. And in which case, how are you supposed to defend yourself as an organization? Well, has anyone ever thought of that? So being a uh, litigator and sort of thinking of the worst case scenario, one way to deal with that is if we have minimum standards expectations at least requesting each organization just like the economic sanctions rules to have some form of guidance process and I think that would be of extraordinary help to organizations so this is going to be my part two recording and I will do the part three accordingly um, providing some guidance and I will probably run some live workshops in the year to help organizations actually because I think this is going to be um, something that people are either going to panic when things go wrong or they're going to be totally organized and if I were you I would rather be in the second boat than the first. So that's some food for thought and I'll be coming back to you soon with the part three. Okay, thank you.